0: Do you you care to explain? Well, okay.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, 2016 happened. And I thought that, like, 2017 would be Times Person of the Year for just replacing 2016. But then it turns out 2017 was even worse so far.
0: You felt the impact of 2016 like everybody else?
1: Well, I remember crying my eyes out. When Lemmy died, because I was in a scene in Terraformer with uh, Lemmy where it's the infamous fat ass gets eaten by escalator scene. And it was just, I I loved Motorhead and I love Bowie and I love Prince. (sighs) And, but the most. Horrific celebrity death of 2016 was my beloved Chihuahua of 15 years, Reverend Jen Jr., who starred in 22 episodes of Electra Elf and countless movies. She was an ad model for Chihuahua Bags. Um, <laughs> that If you have a Chihuahua, they walk real slow. So it's good to have a bag just because you want them to go everywhere with you. And so she was like the Naomi Campbell of Chihuahua bag modeling, and she was my best friend. And
0: she was literally with you i mean every every time I saw you on stage or any video you've ever done she was your she yeah. was your co-star
1: so it's very strange to not be with her, yeah. and I knew that the second she died that I would check myself into a psych ward, and it took about... while. Like, so December twenty seventh, I went into a psychiatric ward uh, where there was actually no psychiatry whatsoever. <laughs> and also, you feel like an idiot for just like crying and losing your mind over your dog yeah. dying. And but those, you feel like an idiot like that to those people who did not read Old Yeller as children or something. I
0: had something similar happen a couple of years ago. I had a uh... It was actually a pet rabbit, but she was uh, twelve at the time. Mm-hmm. And you get to a certain point where you're like, "Well, you kind of brace yourself for it a little mm-hmm. bit, right?" Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know, it's kind of a finite timeline.
1: What was your rabbit's name? Uh, Sylvia. What the fuck? Why was its name was Sylvia?
0: <laughs> she was she was named after my grandmother. I got her oh. shortly after my grandmother died.
1: It's funny to name people's. Yeah pet after other people like them. So I named JJ, Reverend Jen Jr., my chihuahua after myself because sure. I thought like all these dudes have, have kids and name themselves after themselves. So I'll just name my dog after <laughs> myself because I'm never having kids. And then we thought about, my sister and I thought about the fact that my mother hated spiders. And we were going to, for Mother's Day, get her a pet tarantula. Only we couldn't find one. And we are going to name it Ann Jr. (laughs) Because she would never be, like, she likes, you know, pets and stuff too much. She would never be able to get rid of Ann Jr. But she would hate it being around all the time. (laughs) We went to Petco or something to try to find a tarantula. They didn't have any, sadly.
0: She was 16, so you sort of... She was 15. She was 15, but you you saw it coming at that point, right?
1: I knew she, she was still wagging her tail and yeah. still eating, but she started to get real listless, and that was a sign because she was always yeah. a barker and a maniac like most chihuahuas are that I just one day knew. and She had sarcoma, which is like the most aggressive form of cancer there is. And so... um, They just shot her up with, like, enough volume to, like, take out the East Village, you know. And she died in my arms. And it was the saddest thing. I mean, my dad died in my arms, you know. And that, but I I could talk to him. I could explain to him, like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. JJ wasn't afraid, though. And she just died with so much dignity and grace and love and... You know me, right there. And I told I—I I was lucky enough to have three friends with me, and I just told them all to leave, though, so I could have my time with her. So you're speaking someone who's having nervous breakdown <laughs> right now.
0: I mean, you seem to kind of be at, at your your wit's end with just living in New York and everything else. This was sort of kind of the final uh, the final nail in the coffin for you.
1: No, you know, for me, like, um, so my. Neighborhood. So every year, the uh, whatever, Registry for National Historic Registry, blah, 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 whatever they're called, they put out um, the top 11 most endangered spaces in America, historic mm-hmm. places, and the Lower East Side, the entire neighborhood has been in the top 11 for several years and that's the neighborhood i grew to love you know i've been in new york city since i first week i turned 18 and Lower East side i was i gravitated toward it and um now it's just everything is gone the there's scaffolding all over my old building all over daniel's leather which was next to it all over like the dulce vita shoes which was next to it i mean there's almost nothing standing yeah. olympic diner jade liquors everything is gone uh, it's creepy
0: so what what keeps you here
1: a uh, lack of ability to move <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> due to lack of funds. That's kind I of mean, ironic,
0: right? I mean, it's so expensive that you're, you get stuck here at a certain point.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know a uh, very few friends who had a Manhattan place. I had a rent-stabilized Manhattan apartment, but shit got so effed up that I had to... Uh, vacate i suppose although there's still a chance i might get it back for various reasons i don't want to live there anymore it's not the same neighborhood that i grew to know and love i'm actually in june probably moving to spain
0: what's in what's in spain a dude a dude <laughs> that, that's a that's a pretty big uh, it's a pretty big culture shift do you speak spanish
1: I used to, okay. but I can pick it up again like that and you know, quicker than spit. But it's not just because of the dude. It's because, well, it's an old dude, a friend, really. But it's a, a sort of radical shift, and taking a radical shift in one's life is never a bad thing. Yeah. Especially with the things that are going on in the world that are so divisive and crazy that I figure... Why not just leave the country? You want what? to literally leave the country at like, this point? Like, or? what would happen? Yeah. You know? Like, I don't know. Well, well
0: where are you at with... You know, I know I know, you, you did a performance on Sunday. Where are you at with your performing?
1: I haven't been performing that much. My performance on Sunday was just Reverend Jen's Anti-Slam, which mm-hmm. is my open mic that I've been doing since 1994. And it's an open mic. Anyone can do whatever they want. So it's not like a planned performance. You can just show up and do comedy or poetry or music or painting or, you know, dancing, singing. Yeah. Getting therapy that you can't afford otherwise. Yeah. It's like super fun. So I'm doing it at Carrie Able Gallery 409 Keep Street, which is in East Williamsburg. She's like this woman that she was a fashion model. She's so pretty. Oh, it's sickening, but she's also like plays electric guitar yeah. and is a painter and runs an art gallery. And she asked me to do my open mic there, and we've had a great time. It's a lot of old school people, people that were looking for that open mic again. Because of course I had to stop for a few years due to gentrification. There was really no place to do it, and. And trust me, I looked. I mean, at one point, I was doing the open mic in like a hair salon. Yeah, you know, people were like getting blowouts, and no one could hear the person on the on the mic. You know
0: have Have you been able to maintain a, a community around it though, in spite of the fact that you've been moving around so much?
1: Well, the community has been uh, broken apart a lot. I think by several things. First, you know, the economy falling. To total shit. I mean, the worst economic... Well, the worst recession. Or worst economic crisis since we've had. Since the Great Depression. So, a lot of people who had just basic retail jobs or whatever. And used to come to the open mic. Suddenly, they can't afford to pay the rent. And they had to leave. Many of my friends went to Seattle, Oregon. Some to LA. Some overseas. And so... It was a community split apart in a way that uh i I doubt very few communities have been that rapidly split apart, you know not like we're like Syria or whatever, but we're pretty fucked <laughs> and so a lot of my buddies are in Oregon and Seattle. Yeah.
0: when did that really it become clear that that was happening when when did the shift occur? Two
1: thousand nine yeah. I'd say it was the biggest crises because that's when in 2008 the housing crisis imploded yep. in suburban America and then like 2009 it trickled down trickled down economics <laughs> Trump knows all about that um, it trickled down into New York City and that's when people had to go yeah so they went for the west coast or they went for Europe
0: you know you've been doing this live performing i know you had a you had a show for a while on uh on i guess it was public access yeah five um, years five years you know you've done all these books what is your how have you how have you survived what what's been your main source of income
1: mostly i've survived by working retail jobs yeah. like i worked in vintage clothing for a while
0: is the, the entire time
1: no for many years um like you know just Going through piles of vintage clothes and finding out what people might want. And then worked at Bloomingdale's, was an elf, was a giant frog at the zoo. I actually dressed as a giant frog at the zoo. You
0: managed to find a job where you were a professional elf? You were able to parlay your elf experience into (laughs) a real job?
1: I walked into Bloomingdale's and I had my elf ears on. And they were like, well, what makes you fit for this job? And I said, I am an elf. I like, All right. And then I got to two years later be head elf. When Fergie, the former like duchess of whatever uh-huh. the hell. Yeah. Was there doing her book signing. The guy who was VP of Bloomingdale said, hey, where's that Jen elf? We need her to, you know, help Fergie with her uh, book signing why they chose me as a star elf. But... <laughs> well, I was the only one who wore prosthetic elf ears, which, no, I'm not wearing my elf ears, because even my pussy hat that my friend made me for the Women's March got blown off my head today. I couldn't... I couldn't wear prosthetics. And I have the best prosthetics right now, ever. They're from uh, the Ridley Scott film Legend.
0: I think, like, when, when... If you can just walk into a Bloomingdale's, you know, apropos of nothing... And have the confidence to carry yourself as an elf. It's pretty impressive to the people running the store.
1: Sure. And I graduated from the Elf Academy there. And then whoa, I got whoa, 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 to. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is the
0: Elf Academy? The Elf
1: Academy is like a two-day workshop where you learn how to be an elf. Yeah. But I was like, I already got this. Yeah. Like, I already know how to be an elf. What,
0: what are What are some of the, like, quick twit tips that you learned?
1: If you're an elf, you say hello to everyone. Okay. That's pretty much it. Yeah, okay. And from there, you've started a conversation. Yeah. People don't say hello to each other enough. So if you're an elf, you're like, hi. And then they want to talk to you, especially if you're wearing elf ears. But none of the other elves wear elf ears. My first year as an elf at Bloomingdale's, there were like two elves that got in a fist fight over some dude. A cop had to be called. An ambulance had to be called. There was like, there was so much chaos.
0: When did you start wearing the ears?
1: You know, funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, I think I was a sophomore in college. Yeah. And I'd started working with uh, Alcone, the special effects like prop studio in Queens. Because I wanted to work with the different clays that they had there. Because I was actually a sculpture major at huh. that point, And sculpting these uh, beings that I cast later in wax and foam and blah, blah, blah. But they had prostheses there. This is what I'm thinking. Although, I got to say, I was doing a lot of acid at the time. So, I don't know exactly. But I saw these elf ears there and I bought them. I just started wearing them to school every day. I mean, everybody else was, like, getting facial piercings and wearing, like, Hmm. skinny puppy T-shirts and shit. And I'm like, well, elf ears are, you know. Way weirder, how weird all the people that are emo
0: <laughs> the difference though you know like you know if you get a if you get a tattoo you're you're committed to that i I guess for life or until you you get the surgery to remove it the, the elf is you theoretically at least like you could take them off whenever you want, but you you stuck to it
1: well, I want to get prosthesis, yeah. I mean like. Permanent like it, but it's like six hundred dollars and the last time I had six hundred dollars to spare was um, Never in my life (laughs) So I you, I don't imagine it happening ever But I would like to actually get the surgery because I'd like to wake up every single day with elf ears
0: You see them you try them on I mean at what point are you like? Oh, yeah, no, this is this is me
1: after 200 hits of acid (laughs) Yeah so, yeah, to, so this sort of, like, now, baby.
0: the synthesis of all of the acid and the elf ears at the same yeah, time, like, really, something really stuck.
1: Yeah. Something, I don't know. I just thought that they fit me. Yeah. Why not? Fuck it. I mean, women get breast implants, right? No one, and I have no problem with it. I if I could get my face shot up with Botox today, I would. But, like breast implants Botox stuff people don't question it because it's the norm of beauty but what if i want to look like a magical creature what's wrong with that so nothing
0: in school you're doing you're doing sculpting you you kind of figure out this sort of elf identity for yourself and how does that how does that really become part of performance for you
1: well what happened was i didn't i don't think that i ever really figured it out right <laughs> I don't think that it was ever a conscious yeah. decision. I don't think that it was ever, I'm going to wear these ears and it's going to be a trademark. Like, like I don't think Warhol wore those wigs as a trademark. I think mm. there are just those of us freaks that do what we do because we do what we do. And it seems natural to us, I I think. I'm not speaking for Warhol, but I'm speaking for me. And um, I start wearing them... And they just seemed natural. It was like putting on a nice pair of earrings or mm-hmm. something. And then um, I guess the performance aspect of it all started is that I was one of two female sculpture majors at SVA, me and my buddy Julia. Um, One day we're sitting around. We'd taken all the pieces of upholstery foam that many of us used to make our sculptures And we made, like, little people out of them. Fred, Mm -hmm. friend, Ted, and buddy. And then we started a band with them. They were inanimate objects of foam. (laughs) But we started a punk band. And we used to just rehearse in our sculpture studio. Mm -hmm. So we started performing. Sometimes we would do things like dress as pieces of shit. Sometimes we would dress as monkeys. We would dress as, like, all kinds of things. And we would crash parties at SVA and do our punk songs. We we're like the most punk rock band ever.
0: I mean that was really the first time you went out and started performing.
1: Oh, yeah, totally.
0: You're just kind of fucking around with a, a fake band full of foam people.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, they didn't really. Yeah. We'd be like, "Take it away, buddy," and he wouldn't do anything because was just a piece of foam that we found on the floor.
0: So it was like it was almost like a Andy Kaufman routine.
1: It was quite Andy Kaufman, <laughs> actually. I think we were heavily yeah. influenced. Yeah.
0: So how did that really? How did that end up becoming your your main thing? How do you jump into becoming a, a full time performer?
1: Well, there's nothing that is really my main thing. Yeah. Like, you know. uh Julia decided to kind of have a somewhat normal life, <laughs> and moved back to Ithaca, New yeah. York, and to be near waterfalls and hippies. Sure. We're both hippies, and um, and she um, she just started painting again recently. She's the most gifted painter I know, and um, but I kept performing because. You know what I liked? I liked the energy of a live performance. And so then I started writing plays the first night of Collective Unconscious on Ludlow Street. The play I wrote, *Halatonia*, was the first show that like premiered that theater there. And and then I just got off on like the insanity. Yeah. Like, Facebook and I going oh, shit, we don't have curtains for the backstage so people can get changed. So I go, oh, my God, Facebook, here's $3. We run to the 99-cent store and find something. So he gets three 99-cent shower curtain liners, and we use them. It's like that sort of action. But then what moved me toward film was, A, the fact that digital video became way more accessible and easier to use and... Not that I'm a camera person or an editor. I don't do that. I'd rather write and star in it and direct the performers in terms of acting and being stupider and funnier and weirder and gayer. <laughs> you know, like, that's my job. I don't want to edit or, or hold a camera. But the actual technology became so much more accessible that I thought, wow. Here's something that will last that mm. I can put on a projector, and that started actually with Lord of the Cockerings, which I made with Nick Zed, which we showed for like three months straight at Collective on unconscioussus always sold out crowd, you know, and uh so it taught me a little bit. I still love live performance more than anything, but I mean, for me, the main art. If 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 it was like Sophie's Choice, and they were like, okay, you're a multidisciplinary sure. artist, sure. and you like writing, painting, blah blah blah. blah I just say writing. Mm. I mean, writing is why I live.
0: You have to sort of look back on that time, you know, versus now. And do, I mean, do you think that you could have gotten that kind of start had you had had you moved to New York? You know, in the last ten years.
1: I don't think about stuff like that, (laughs) and I really don't, and I don't, I don't think, I'm definitely not financially successful, right? Uh, Artistically, I would consider myself extremely successful in Shakespearean terms of like, to thine own self be true. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, I've had seven books published, and with each and every one of them, at the end of writing that book, I go, well is that the best book I could have written? And if I can say fuck yeah, yeah, I can say fuck yeah, it was. And otherwise, I won't put it out. I mean, with Live New Dolph, which came out in 2009, I was troubled by the ending because it wasn't good enough. And I asked a real honest friend to give me her criticism of it. And I took her criticism and I went back in and it took me a couple more months to, you know, write the ending and make it real good. Um, or at least what I think is real good. But anything I do, whether it's a painting or a book or a play, you know or even the stupidest movie in the world, like Werewolf Bitches, and mm-hmm. like I, I it's got to be the best thing I can put out at, at that time. Yeah. Sometimes that ain't the best, and that's fine. I mean, Picasso failed uh, at times, not often, but a lot.
0: Seven books though is I mean, that's really impressive, especially when you, you consider the fact that like so many people spend their lives just circling around that first book.
1: Well, I I circled around my first book actually for a long, long time. My book June, um, took me twelve years to hmm. write. It was something that I just I hadn't kept enough journals. Like a lot of young writers write me, um, Emails asking how they can uh, become writers or writers of novels or whatever. Yeah. And I say, how to Get started. Yeah, I say, like, number one, keep a journal. Write every single thing that happens to you every day in it. Even the real mundane stuff. Because when you look back 10 years later, the mundane stuff is going to be quite interesting. Mm. And so. The book, June, that is the last book I put out with my own imprint, uh, I had to fictionalize because some details I couldn't remember. Most of it I could because I'd kept, okay, adequate journals when I, I was 22 or something, when what the sort of time period that the book is based on. But I I actually really, like, um... I wish I'd kept better journals. And so no. I try to tell everyone who wants to be a writer, like, never leave your home without a pen and a notebook. <laughs> Otherwise you're screwed. Because you never know what's going to happen. And you want to be there for what's going to happen. Maybe you're not a journalist. But, you know, and like, I, having recently been in the psych ward, I think about, like, I've never been a war correspondent but I wasn't a psych ward. And the one thing I asked for was a pen and a Hmm. piece of paper so that I could write down what I saw. And that was a war on its own. Like, you know, people suffering from mental illness that don't have access to treatment that had been in wars. Three of the dudes I'd been in the psych ward with had been in the um, Iraq war. And so... I just felt like I was like working a different kind of battlefield like maybe I wasn't ever going to win the Pulitzer but I was right there on the battlefield watching what happens to people when they are born impoverished when broken families and don't have many choices except to go to
0: war when you're in that kind of situation and you're dealing with all of your own stuff you're able to, to focus on that
1: yeah, one thing that is good for me actually is um, empathy and compassion are my fatal flaws, right? But <laughs> when I'm in that situation, and and I have to be in that situation because I do have, like, I don't know, I think at this point five mental disorders. <laughs> Being in that situation, I can uh, understand other people who are vulnerable if not more vulnerable than me and then i can i don't know it's just people are real man in the psych world no one's asking you what do you do for a living what yeah. does your dad do what is your like no one gives a shit we're yeah. all in there for the same reason we're all fucked up and we just we just all have problems everybody does
0: but you're still able to, to talk to them you're still able to ask them questions and have conversations
1: Oh yeah, man. I rule art therapy in the psych word.
0: <laughs> so you're you're still um you're still journaling then on a on a regular basis?
1: I try to, you uh, know, this year's been so rough that yeah. I haven't enough. When I do, it's mostly actually strangely enough in poetry. Cuz like gets it out shorter. Sometimes like I just gotta get out shorter yeah. a poem will do. But I journal as much as I can. I think it's healthy for everybody to journal. And uh I write down my dreams a lot.
0: That first book, what what was it? You've gotta have conviction to a story to wanna to tell a story to have to chase it for twelve years.
1: Well June so June I started because I was working as a submissive at Pandora's Box, like the fanciest dungeon in New York. (laughs) And I just... I was like 22 or something. Someone was like, you have an ass made for spanking. I said, I need money. (laughs) And I'll take that money. Shit, I have to work two hours a week. I'll take it. And I didn't even... Maybe because I was so young, that's 22 years ago that I didn't even quite recognize how uh, odd it was, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: What I was doing.
0: Or potentially dangerous to just have a person say that to you. It was so
1: totally crazy. Like at Pandora's Box we had these walls that were like Scooby Doo walls. So like if you were like a psychotic client you had to like push the wall. And it would swivel around into yet another, so you could go from like the medieval dungeon into the schoolroom. Like the walls, trick, would like trick walls Yeah, trick walls. We had trick walls there. But then sometimes you're tied up and dressed like a cheerleader and being caned, and you're like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> At first, when you're kind of like thrust into that world, obviously you didn't really know anything about it. You're you're you're, yeah, you're doing and... all this. Did you? How how are you coping with it? Okay,
1: well, so. I was fascinated by s m literature um as a teenager, like a love story of I will, right. I think I yeah. kept a copy of it under my bed. I didn't realize I was a submissive until I realized I was a submissive mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I had like you know I was into Henry Miller and not yeah. Nice then and yeah. like all that stuff because. I just felt there was a falseness about people's sexuality yeah. from a pretty young age.
0: But you were in the way, you were into it in the way of like a teenager reading Henry Miller's into Henry Miller, right? Yeah, like, totally. Yeah.
1: But then I thought I want to get to like the depths of this. I want to figure out what's going on in people's minds that makes them tick sexually in a certain way. Mm. It became fascinating for me and also for real, I'll just drop any intellectual ball here and just like that's <laughs> bullshit. I liked making five hundred dollars sure. an hour, yeah, and um, and then not working for another week and getting to write yeah. about stupid shit like unicorns. For just a not week. having to worry about it for <laughs> yeah. a week, yeah. That makes, and that makes it, sense. yeah, but the toll it took on me was pretty heavy. I mean, yeah. the book June is like. My first client, so I was working at Pandora's. They only ever had one submissive. They wouldn't even run my ads because I looked like I was 14 and they didn't want to get busted, right? So so then I meet the girl who'd been the submissive before me there at that little, like, Mexican restaurant under the Chelsea Hotel. Mm Mm-hmm. She invites me to do yeah. Don Pedro's is or, like or cool. It was Don like something. It was a Spanish place. Yeah, it was awesome.
0: Yeah, Don Don Quixote. Yeah, Don something. Quixote. Something yeah, like that. Quixote.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we uh, so we meet there, and she goes, "Well, do you want to do sessions with me out of my place in the Chelsea Hotel?" And I'm like. Yeah, fuck it. I mean I just wanted money. And at the time I was spending all my money on stuff for like one person shows. Yeah. Like going like I'm gonna get a slide projector and that'll be awesome. Spend all your money on Not foam. not even like thinking like yeah. maybe I wanna save some money sure. and like keep an apartment when I'm in my forties, you know? And so I was just blowing all this money on like slides and crap and paint supplies and things that probably never even used i i I don't even know how much money i blew but you know so i show up and i think it's just gonna be a straight up s&m session which some of them were rough like caning but eh, caning not that bad people stop complaining about it and then like other things but It was a full-on prostitution session. And at that point, I became a prostitute. He was a bishop. And he paid me $500 to fuck me up the ass. And I'll tell you, well, luckily, he had a very small penis. And also, (laughs) it shouldn't even... See, the thing is, I don't care at all. So I'll talk about this on a podcast. Um, he, uh, had a very small penis and that's fine. It was flaccid most of the time, but also I learned later about his problems and I, I felt sorry for him actually, you know, 500, 500, 500. but that night I went to an open mic on the lower east side, met up with face boy and my buddy Jeff and Jeff said 500. That was such a bargain. <laughs> And then I so
0: I This really... was like five hundred in what, nineteen eighty nine or
1: No, nah, it's like ninety three. Ninety
0: three. Even so, you know.
1: It's a lot of money. It's a
0: lot of money. Nice. Yes.
1: Don't have to work ever again <laughs> this month. Whee. <laughs> so
0: that all happened. But you but you uh but you, you kinda went that, that first time, realized what it is and just said, fuck it and went for it?
1: Well, I did the thing at the Chelsea Hotel a bunch of times for, like, a couple years, yep. you know, and then I would rent out dungeons and do submissive stuff there, and then I took a job at, like, a Barnes & Noble. I was like, I can't do the same It's destroying my mental health, and then that just destroyed my mental health.
0: <laughs> it's It's just a different kind of... <laughs> And every I, every job is going to wear you down, but in different ways, I guess.
1: Yeah, so I, I just didn't even like. Then I started working at the Tenement Museum, which I loved, and I yeah. worked there for twelve years. What
0: were your goals, like creatively? I mean, obviously, like publishing a book was a big part of it, but did you see a place for yourself and what you were doing? Um, did 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 you see kind of like a logical career path for yourself?
1: No, no, <laughs> I've never had a trajectory at yeah. all. Right, I've never had a career path. Uh, I've always felt like I had a vocation. Yeah. Like no one asks a priest, you know, sure. what did you see your career path as being like, and I feel like Or do artists... you expect to
0: become the Pope someday? Exactly. I've yeah.
1: always felt artists should be addressed the same way. I've I've been drawing and painting. Visual arts were my first since I could walk, you yeah. know. And uh and I never had a vocation. I just um uh, I mean, people said I was a prodigy when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I actually think I'm, like, an idiot with probably a, like, below average IQ that just worked harder than other kids. But that's my thought um what I am. And other people can think whatever mm-hmm. they want. But I never had a plan. One thing that I really wanted was after working for Nerve for so long yeah. as a sex columnist... I did really want to get my columns published because I thought as a whole they were a great uh, set of books about what it was like to work as a sex columnist. And, And then Jonathan Ames got so frustrated by my inability to get a columnist that he jumped in and said I'll be your agent but then of course he sat on it for like six fucking months and I'm like Jonathan god damn it just send it out to somebody I'm broke so he did it in the first person he sent it out to soft skull <laughs> and they took it and he wrote the intro for it and then that led to Simon & Schuster I mean the first one was actually through the Warhol Foundation and mm. the NEA which Trump is going to cut because it's yeah. too huge and uh, that was, yeah, so that was the first book I did. But the first books I did were, like, all zines. I mean, I made my first zines when I was 11. And I used to um, Xerox them in the Montgomery County Courthouse in Maryland where my dad was the chief judge. <laughs> I used to go there and use their Xerox machine like a little bratty shit when I was 11.
0: When did you really discover other creative people? When did you realize that there were other weirdos out there like you?
1: Well, uh, okay, so uh, I wanted to be a fashion designer when I was little because I love fashion. You can tell it because I'm wearing my friend's mm-hmm. L.O. Bean shirt. But, um, it's a very large sweater. It's very large. I mean, it's a man's sweater. Um, so I asked my mom for a sewing machine for my birthday one year, and she got me one. And I was like, fuck sewing! I hate it. No. I Drew Club, I've designed a lot of outfits, actually, that I've worn on stage and stuff, but I've never been able to sew. So the next thing I asked for was a typewriter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just started writing nonstop. Yeah. But I took to painting immediately. My father was a painter. He was a judge, but he was also a painter. And, uh... I grew up around these fabulous paintings he made that were, they're so good. So and, so
0: you were exposed to, like, art and artists to some degree.
1: Yeah, and he, he gave me my sort of, he was uh, real smart in terms like this. Okay, so I'm looking at these paintings he had done during the Korean War of little Korean kids that, He was an intelligence. He weighed Mm. about 110 pounds soaking wet. (laughs) No one actually thought he was a soldier, right? (laughs) But he would just paint everything in Korea. And these paintings blew my mind as a little kid. Mm. And I said, Dad, uh, why didn't you just become a painter? He goes, well, honestly, your grandma... Just to get me painting lessons at University of Maryland. Because when you're a kid in Maryland, you can get painting lessons when you're like 14, 15 at University of Maryland. They're like a dollar. Still to this day. (laughs) Thank you, University of Maryland. Big old shout out. No, but they're a great school. And so he said, but I used to skip them. And I'd just go to Champions and play pool. (laughs) I said, Why? said art was too much discipline. And I said, but you became a lawyer and then a judge. Yeah. You went to war. You had one marriage. You had another marriage. You had five kids. He said art is harder. <laughs> and that taught me the everything Army. I ever. Yeah. Or Air law force. school. Air force. Yeah. Eh? It taught me everything I ever needed to know about being an artist. Art is real hard because you never know if there's going to be a payoff at all. And so um, when I was 15, I was in public school and um, I didn't think that the art teacher was very good. (laughs) And then I found out that there was like this other art program at another public school called Einstein. I submitted a portfolio you had to, like, get into. It. it was free and stuff. And so I studied with him for two years, and he taught me to draw and paint. I mean, I replicated a Vermeer <laughs> when I was, like, 17 and, like, little tiny pieces of cut paper and then, again, in colored pencils, just, like, real technical stuff. This is why February 18th I start teaching at Carrie Gallery. I'm going to teach kids to draw and paint. And it's the idea of being behind that the technical skills of drawing can lead yeah. to other things, and it can also lead to just expression of self, if mm-hmm. not yeah, you know, technical but discipline right. It takes incredible discipline. I mean, trust me, I didn't sleep for three days doing those Vermeers. I started to go crazy
0: is it still is it still hard? Is art still hard for you?
1: No. In fact, that's why I want to teach, because nothing's hard for me anymore.
0: <laughs> that says it. I don't, I don't believe that. I mean, you. some things... You're you're going to do some shit right now. Some things are hard. Well, yeah. Hard. I mean,
1: is art still hard? Art's not hard. So, as one of my favorite artists in the whole world, Mike Kelly, said, um, art is easy, life is hard. He killed himself two years ago. Um... I think that art is the greatest conduit we have from, like, a higher plane to the physical plane. It's a way that people can communicate that isn't in a written word. Well, next music, which, like I said, my favorite yep. art form, but I'll never ruin it. But um, I think it's one way that a little kid can look at something and just go, Wow. And, I mean, one of my favorite books in the whole world, if anyone out there wants to be a painter, is called um, The Success and Failure of Picasso. And the idea behind the book sort of is that Picasso succeeded most of the time. He also failed. But in the case of a painting like *Guernica*, like... Um, Jean Berger, the art critic who wrote the book, he has, like, a picture of a Rubens' crucifixion next to, like, a little fragment of Granica, and he's like, this is why Picasso succeeds, whereas most artists don't. Picasso can paint more pain in one horse's head than most artists can in an entire crucifixion. He nailed it. That's why, as an artist when you achieve something like that you can just go to sleep and night I, go, I did my job <laughs> did it really well
0: there you go that's reverend jen miller thank you so much to her for taking the time to do that as was alluded to several times during that conversation she's been having a rough uh, year or a uh, couple of years but uh, very much enjoy that conversation she's been something of a, a constant presence it's ever since I moved to the city. I've been here for, God, over 12 years at this point. And when I first moved to the city and was uh, going around and, and, you know, checking out free things and, and live shows and trying to take in some of the culture, uh, she was. She seemed to be everywhere, and just this kind of amazing presence with the, the elf ears and, and the uh, chihuahua, rest in peace. Um, she was doing cable access, you know, she was in the Village Voice, I, she was doing a, a sex column for Nerve.com, just kind of a very very singular, very New York City kind of figure, and uh, really the kind of thing that uh, I, we're, we're not seeing as much as we used to and figure that trend will continue for a while and certainly uh, the the economics of living in the city have been affecting her quite a bit, they're a a big source of some of the issues that she's been having, Uh, but if you do want to support her or just check out her work you can follow her on Twitter it's it's at Reverend Jen Uh, check out her website, that's I highly recommend checking out some of her stuff and, and reading some of her books and just seeing the, the breadth of things that she's created. Uh, thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or iTunes. Or uh, consider consider supporting us over on Patreon if you got a few bucks to send our way. Uh, if you got any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. Like us on Facebook. I think that's about all I got. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to be back next week. I'm going to be traveling to foreign lands. Uh, But if we don't have a show next week, don't don't worry too much. We'll be back right after that with another episode of R.I.Y.L.